Headline, World's Richest Man Loses Everything. That really happened. I'll tell you the story in a second. If you lost all your wealth tomorrow, so you had to live the rest of your life in extreme poverty, what would that do to your happiness? Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Here's your host, Dr. D. Richard Ferguson. Another key aspect of humility, selflessness. And by selflessness, what I mean is the attitude that we saw back in verse 3. So this is a big, big category. Uh, Your well-being is more important than my own comfort and preferences. That, that attitude. That's what I mean by selflessness. If, if I can do something that will improve your well-being and, and, and by giving up some comfort or some preference that I have, that decision is a no-brainer. Right? I'll just do it. That's what this attitude says. That's selflessness. And the greatest example of selflessness ever given is the one described right here by what Jesus did. He just let go of what was precious to him. He just let it go. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped. All these benefits that were rightfully his in heaven, that he, the, the, the ones that he would no longer have access to as a, as a man on earth, he willingly just gave that up. He didn't think of it as something to be grasped onto, clutched, gripped. He just, he just loosened his grip and let go of it for our sake. Uh, this is what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is saying. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know the grace, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What kind of riches is that talking about? What kind of riches did Jesus have in heaven uh, before he came uh, to this world? Well, it was, you could sum it up by just saying, The riches, it was everything that he needed to be eternally happy and blessed. This is the doctrine that that theologians refer to as the the eternal blessedness of God. He he was happy, and everything needed, required to make him happy was there. That's That's his riches. On Judgment Day, when God separates the sheep from the goats in Matthew 24, he says to the sheep, come and share in your master's happiness. That's heaven. That's that's his perfect description of heaven right there. Come and share in your master's happiness. So when you think of God, think happy. Happy. God is infinitely happy. Before Jesus came into this world, he enjoyed infinite, eternal happiness. Happiness and joy beyond anything that we have ever, anyone in this room has ever experienced or ever could even conceive of. Our greatest, most ecstatic, exuberant pleasures that we've had absolutely zero out in comparison to the happiness that the Lord Jesus Christ in, enjoyed in heaven before he became a man. Our capacity for pleasure as, as finite beings is so small that you can't even, there's no comparison. God has infinite power and so nothing could constrain him from doing that which he most desired throughout eternity. He's infinitely energetic and absolutely unbounded, unending enthusiasm for the fulfillment of his own delights. This is the way he is. And not only is he infinitely happy, but he has infinite capacity to enjoy that which makes him happy. So what is that? What is it he's so happy about? Well, uh, his own glory. 
he, he was happy before anything was ever created. Before, before, ever, before he created one single angel, anything, when there was nothing, nothing except for God. He was happy because the members of the Trinity take infinite delight in one another. This is, that's how great God is. God is so great and so satisfying that he can, and we just sing all those songs about how God satisfies the human soul. <laughs> if you ever doubt that God can satisfy your little human soul, God is so great. He can satisfy all of the appetites and desires of God. That's how much he has. He can satisfy God forever without the other members of the Trinity ever getting bored. When Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he peeled back his, uh, his, the veil of his humanity and a, a tiny little portion of his glory was, was revealed, what happened? God the Father saw it and he spoke out loud and said, This is my Son in whom I delight. And if he delights that much in that tiny little limited, finite display of Jesus' glory, imagine the Father's joy being exposed to the full blast of God the Son's glory all through eternity past. And the Son had that same delight in the Father. John 1, one. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Actually, the, the, the Greek word there is pros. Toward God, and the Word was God. The Word was toward. It's a relational idea. Orientation. The Son uh, was not only present with the Father for eternity past, but He was He was facing Him. He was toward Him. He was oriented towards Him, beholding Him, enjoying Him, enthralled with Him. I love this quotation from John Piper in the, the book The Pleasures of God. He writes this, God the Father has always been the landscape of the excellencies of divine glory and the panorama of God's perfections so that from all eternity, God the Son has beheld with indescribable satisfaction the magnificent terrain of his own radiance as seen in the Father. I love that. In fact, I love it so much I'm going to read it again. God the Father has always been the landscape of the excellencies of divine glory and the panorama of God's perfection, so that from all eternity, God the Son has beheld with indescribable satisfaction the magnificent terrain of his own radiance as seen in the Father. And when Jesus was nearing the end of his time on earth, you can just... Hear him longing for that again, to experience that again. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So, that's what made him happy. That was, that was his riches in heaven. And on top of that, on top of beholding glory, there's also love. That was part of his riches in heaven. The greatest joys in life involve love, right? Love relationships. If you think back to the moment of your greatest happiness in life, most likely it had something to do with, with people that you love. And, and the more intimate the relationship, the more precious the object of your love, the greater the joy of loving them. Uh, the intimacy between the members of the Trinity is a closeness of affection that is just absolutely incomprehensible to us, greater than anything we've experienced, and so greater joy. Matthew 11:27. no one knows the Son 
except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Nobody has that kind of intimacy except for us, um, Jesus said. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. In the, in the Greek there, literally, it's it's upon the Father's chest. Same word for when John was leaning his chest against Jesus at the Last Supper. I was upon the Father's chest. The one who was there at his side, leaning on his chest, has made him known. And you, and so you have all the joy that came from that love relationship. And then you add to that the enjoyment that the Son had loving his people, loving us. Um, he didn't, he didn't need us in any way. Um, but he delighted to create us and then love us, and he likes that. He likes doing that. C.S. Lewis says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. That's basically the story of what happened. Psalm 147.11, the Lord delights in those who fear him. Delights. In you, Zephaniah 3.17, he will take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love and he'll rejoice over you with singing. What does the singing of God sound like when he's that happy about you? Isaiah 62.5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So Jesus had that. He, He had the enjoyment of love. And... And then another aspect of, of the riches that he enjoyed throughout eternity past was infinite freedom. He was never constrained, as I said before, by or forced by any inner deficiency or any external pressure to ever do anything that he did not want to do. When Ephesians 1.5 says that he acts according to his own good pleasure and his own will, that means there's nothing outside of God's pleasure that drives his choices or his actions. It's all for his pleasure. Everything. Psalm 135.6 is one of the many passages that says this. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on earth and in the seas and all their depths, wherever he does whatever pleases him. Do you know he does whatever he wants? Whatever makes him happy. Another chest of riches that that he derived pleasure from before he came, became a man was the pleasure he des- derived from his creation. Psalm 104, verse 31, talks about God rejoicing in all his works. The Lord rejoices in all his works. As human beings, we're limited in our ability to understand uh, and appreciate the wonders of creation. I mean, we can appreciate a lot, but but we're limited. Uh, we're limited. Um, but in heaven, the Son of God had full appreciation of all of the wonders. All the stuff that's down on the bottom of the ocean, that's way out in the galaxies, all the stuff we can't see, the stuff we're just now discovering, all this stuff. He just watched it, and he loved it. So many amazing things in the creation that we can never see that God just enjoys. Ultimately, the whole thing was for his pleasure. It's all for him. Hebrews 2.10 refers to God for whom and through whom everything exists. For whom? Everything exists. Colossians 1.16, we saw last week, all things were created by him and for him. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Uh, Isaiah 43.21, for the people I formed for myself. Uh, Revelation 4.11, you have created all things and for your pleasure they are created. 
And that's just a sampling of things that he had, the riches he had in heaven. The Bible also talks about the great joy and the rejoicing of God over things like uh, his own name, over election, over the obedience of his children, over justice being carried out, over the gospel and the revelation of the gospel, over the work of redemption, over the prayers of the saints, uh, over giving us the kingdom, uh, over little children. Uh, he literally rejoices over all his works. He loves watching what he does. So all of that is just a very brief, brief summary of the blessedness of God. Um, John Piper wrote a big, thick book on this, uh, expanding all that out, uh, called The Pleasures of God. So that's just a summary. That's what it was like for Jesus before he came to earth. That's what, when 2 Corinthians 8 9 says Jesus was rich, folks, I hope you understand Jesus was rich. And that's what he gave up in order to come and meet our need, which is the degree of difficulty of any suffering is related to what you're used to, right? So uh, I remember the first time I heard of a car with power door locks, and I remember making fun of it. I remember it's like, good grief, how lazy have we gotten where we need power door locks, you know, and I just thought it was silly. Well, after a while, I ended up having a car with power door locks, and uh, I remember one day when the, the fuse blew, and they didn't work. And I could not believe what a hardship it was for me to go around and lock all these doors, manually do these doors. Now, we can imagine that. That's just a silly thing. We can imagine that on a little bigger scale. I mean, if you lived your whole life at the poverty level for the last 10 years or whatever, and then, and then, uh, then for you, seeing something in a store and having to say, well, I can't buy that, uh, you're used to that, that's not a big deal for you. But if you lived your whole life as a multimillionaire, billionaire, whatever, you could buy whatever you wanted at any time, and you were suddenly reduced to poverty, that would be very, very difficult, wouldn't it? What you're used to determines the level of difficulty of a trial. When Christ left the glories of heaven in our wildest imaginations, we can never identify with the jolt that must have rattled his being when he went from being uh, that to just a limited, dependent, needy human being. I'm sure there are no words to describe the agonizing, jarring shock to his whole being. We, 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 can, we can imagine to some degree shock, right? We can, the shock of a sudden, painful reality. We can imagine like, say, uh, waking up in the morning sick with the flu and rolling out of the warmth of your bed into a vat of uh, ice water, right? Um, I mean, we, can, we can imagine shock. Although there, there's a limitation on what we can actually feel because God has made our bodies so that at some point we go into shock and we can't feel anymore or we pass out from pain or whatever. You can, but, but we can imagine little pieces of it. You could, you could picture like some horrific thing, like you, like right in the middle of embracing your loved ones and then suddenly having them ripped from your arms and put to death right in front of you or some horrific thing. As human beings, we can fathom something of what it's like to have everything precious ripped away from you and replaced by everything you most despise. But in our worst night terrors, we could never, even the most mind-bending nightmare you've ever had, ever taste even one grain of sand of the infinite desert of loss that God the Son suffered leaving heaven and coming to earth. 
becoming a man. And you might read Philippians 2 and say he, became, he was human and he became a man and, and you're just like, well, uh, you know, being human isn't that bad. I don't mind it. I kind of like it. Well, that's good, but, but my guess is the average fly doesn't mind being a fly. Right? But if you had to go from being a human being and having a job and a family and, and relationships and work and all kinds of meaningful stuff, and you had to go from that to suddenly being a fly and live the life of a fly, just just buzzing around looking for some manure to land in, and that's your life, all the time aware in your little fly brain of what it was like to be a human being, you still remember that, you'd be one unhappy little bug. You could, but, but the thing we need to know is the descent from being a human down to being a fly is an infinite gap which makes it nothing compared to the loss that Jesus Christ suffered coming uh, uh, into this world from from infinite glory down to a manger, a feed trough. We think, I don't want to go on the mission field. they got bugs and snakes. I'm glad Jesus didn't think that way. I'm glad he didn't say, I don't want to go down there. And even if you just forget about everything that Jesus left in heaven, everything that he was used to, just think about what his life was like. It was not an easy life. Because think about this. The thing that gives you uh, strength to keep going in life is hope. Hope that something good will come of your life, right? And and so we have all these hopes and aspirations and dreams of, of some, some future thing, you know, or you dream of some of your kids doing something in the future or whatever. What was Jesus' life like? How, how would you like to live a, a whole life knowing that the only thing that you have to look forward to ultimately in your life is eventually to reach the prime of life and come to a violent, bloody end? And that it's going to happen, this violent end, at the hands of your Father in heaven with whom you have enjoyed nothing but unbroken, perfect intimacy with forever. What was it like for Jesus to live his whole life with nothing to, but that to look forward to, and in the meantime, while he's waiting for that, to live a life of poverty and uh, being soundly rejected by the very people for whom he was doing all this? If you had a conversation with Jesus right before he came down into this world, you might say... Um, Jesus, you're going to go down there. If you do that, you realize you're going to be laid in a feed trough. You're going to be born in poverty. And he would say, well, that doesn't matter. My, my people need me to come. I'm going. Yeah, but, 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 but you're going to be marginalized. You're going to be despised. doesn't matter. You're going to be rejected and mocked and, and abused and beaten. It doesn't matter. You're going to be crucified. You're going to be nailed to a cross. It doesn't matter. The people I love have a need. I'm going to meet their need. Okay. So all of that is the riches that he gave him. Now let's go back to Philippians 2. Verse 6. Christ, who being in the very form of God, in all those riches of deity, did not consider all that as something to be grasped. It was rightfully his. 
He was infinitely worthy and deserving of it. It was good that he had it. He owed nothing to anyone. Everyone owed everything to him. But he let it go. He let it go. For us. That is what selflessness looks like. So you think you have rights? You, you, I mean, you have never had the right. Nothing has ever been more rightfully yours than Christ's glory in heaven was rightfully his, right? And he traded it all for the spittle of man on his face and a crown of thorns and blows to the head and mockery and rejection and death. That's our example. So do you have something that rightfully belongs to you? It's yours? Be willing to let go of it. What are you rich in? Use it to make someone else rich. What are you rich in? If you live in America, you're rich financially, for sure, compared to most people in the world. So think about how you could use your discretionary income to bless other people. If you really want to help the poor, the best way to do it that I know of is through Kiva.org, an organization that makes loans to people starting businesses. But what else are you rich in? How about... Your spiritual gifts, your talents, abilities, experiences, things you're good at, or where you're capable. How could you spiritually enrich people with those abilities? Are there any adjustments you need to make in your daily routines so that your life is a continual fountain of life-giving grace to enrich the people around you? Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. Lord, You are good, and Your love endures forever. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you gave up to come to meet my needs. Thank you for suffering discomfort, humiliation, poverty, torture, death, and everything else you suffered to provide for my salvation. If you did all that, there's no reason for me to ever think that I need to be stingy with people to protect my own well-being. I can be generous because you will always supply abundantly. I've received freely. Teach me to give freely. Because if I do, you will repay me a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over into the lap. Blessed is the man who fears you, Lord, who finds great delight in your commands. If I fear you, you promise that my children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in my house, and my righteousness will endure forever. You promise that even in darkness, light will dawn for me if I'm upright, gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to me if I'm generous and lend freely 
and conduct my affairs with justice. You promise I will never be shaken. I'll be remembered forever. I will have no fear of bad news. My heart will be steadfast, trusting in you. My heart will be secure. I will have no fear. In the end, I will look in triumph on my foes. You promise that if I scatter gifts abroad to the poor, my righteousness will endure forever. My strength will be lifted high in honor. But the longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Thank you for listening. If you found today's episode edifying, why not share it with a friend? This season of the Food for Your Soul podcast features excerpts from our sermon series on the book of Philippians, 50 expository sermons covering every verse. You can find those and hundreds of other sermons for free download on drichardferguson.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.